Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Well, today and the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the cross. And when you drive up to pretty much any church, but our church in particular, you'll see these big steel crosses outside in the building. You walk in, there's a beautiful wooden cross over the foyer doors when you come in that we had made. Um, there's crosses on the walls here. There's this rugged cross up here in front. Some of you have jewelry with crosses on it. And every time you look at a cross, you hear something. There's a message that's coming forth from the cross. You cannot look at a cross uh, seriously without being moved. And here's what I believe, that when you truly understand the meaning of the cross and what that represents, it humbles you. It breaks you. It begins to change something deep within you, and you become a different person. You become a better person because of the cross. And the cross is simply God's remedy for sin in the world because when God made us and placed us upon this beautiful planet, we've turned against God. We've rebelled against God. But God loved us so much He sent his son to this world to take our place in dying for our sins. And so we want to share that message today in the next few weeks with you in a little bit of greater detail. And part of the reason is sometimes we think church is all about a lot of different things, but really the church, the church is based on one story. It's the story of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And you may not understand a lot about the Bible. You may get lost when you open up Revelation or Ezekiel and that kind of stuff. And all, all scripture has a value to it. But at the core of our faith is this singular belief. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper every week because we do believe that Jesus Christ died. His blood was shed for our sins. And we practice baptism, which represents, I do believe that Jesus was buried and raised and that I myself can be raised to live in a new way of life. We're gonna look at a passage of scripture from the book of Romans. In this book, in this passage we're gonna look at in just a little bit, um, it, it tells us of our condition. But you need to know this, that God's statement in what he said on the cross What he says through the cross is greater than our state. That whatever condition you find yourself in, how bad it is, how repulsive it is, how defiant you've been against God, God's statement from the cross is even greater than the statement you're making because all of us are making a statement in how we live. And when you live a life that gravitates towards sin, what you're saying is you're giving God the finger, basically. That's a statement. But God on the cross is making a more powerful statement back to you, one that screams of his love from the cross. And it's so important we know that today because a lot of us need to be reminded of this very core message that, that God loves you more than you'll ever know. And there's nothing you can ever do to make him love you more and there's nothing you've ever done that will make him love you any less than he already does because he, he made it definitive when he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. So I wanna pray a prayer and I would ask you to open your heart today to him that whatever God would want to penetrate deep within you, maybe a correction of a thought, maybe a softening of the heart, maybe an affirmation of some things that that you believed long ago and need to be reminded of today that he would speak and you would hear him today. So Father, we come before you. Our hearts are open. We just sang a song that Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. So have your way with us. Speak your truth to us powerfully, we pray. And may the cross be unforgettable because of the time we share today, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, I wanna um, back up and just remind you that um, last week, as we wrapped up this, this um, sermon series on discipleship, that we encouraged you to do four things, and it was just being a good steward of, of what God has given. We said that to make sure you steward your time well, and between last week and Easter, take a few minutes every day to pray. And we have, actually have a a page you can download on our website that gives you seven prayers for seven days on Facebook. We're trying to keep up updating them every day. So you can go on there and it's just a prayer starter, something to get you launched into praying, but really to get our hearts in the spirit of Easter and what, what the significance is 
for this. Secondly, we want you to steward your talents, uh, meaning that, that you would attend a service and serve a service. We still have a lot of needs in the area of, our, of helping with our children. And so if you can help next, or excuse me, two weeks from today, you can help Easter Sunday. But just being available with the kids, helping wherever they need, we still need about 100 people to help out. I'd love after the service for a bunch of you to go over to the, to the um, Next Gen area or the Welcome Center and say, you know what, I'm available. I, didn't, I wasn't here last week. I didn't sign up last week. But now that I know the need's still there, I'm available. This is the one day of the year when unchurched people will come to hear the message of the, of the cross and the resurrection. And so we know the story. We're talking about it today. But they won't be here today or next week. They'll be here Easter. So we want to make sure that we're ready for them Easter Sunday. The third is with our treasure, and as Lisa just shared, to trust God. And, and if Jesus was willing to give his life for us on the cross, can we trust him enough, at least for these three weekends, to say, God, okay, I'm going to do this thing called tithing and give you the first tenth of what you give me. And I want to honor you because of what you've done for me over these weeks. Because we want to make sure that we're doing all the ministry that God has called us to do and, and not pull back the reins on any of that. And finally, to share your testimony, there's a, there's a card like this on the, at the Welcome Center, I think right at the little table when you walk in. These are invite cards. You can take as many as you want and hand them out to your friends, put them at work, stick them in your boss's uh, uh, in slot at, at the office, you know, put on windshields, um, whatever you need to do to get the word out to your friends. But accompany this, if you can, with, with a little bit of your own testimony of why you love Easter, why you love church. And it's not church building, it's not church programs, it's because of what God has done. And I think people are hungry for that. Well, in, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is writing about this incredible grace of the Lord. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by God's, from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. In this section of scripture, we realize that our condition is far worse than we'd realize. That our condition is worse than you or I would ever realize. And you need to understand uh, the depth of, of what God has to do to reach us. It's not like we're sitting at tables trying to negotiate with God a way for us to get in the, the rights with God. It's as if we are locked down in a dungeon in the basement, the darkest depths of the basement because of what we've done. And God's up in the, in the suite on, on the third floor. And God comes down to where we are to meet us. And you need to understand that gap because the, the, the greater the gap, the greater the love that fills the gap. And if you make that gap small, you minimize the love of God. The love of God is so vast, so wide, and so deep because the chasm caused by our sin is so wide, so deep, and so great. And so we want to bring that together today. I was uh, listening to a leader this past week, and he was saying that one of the top jobs of a leader is to define reality. A leader has to tell people, really, what's the truth? And you cannot go from here to there unless you know where here is. And we cannot deal with the issues in our life without really having the truth. Okay, tell me how bad it really is. And so I'm going to tell you how bad it really is because it's worse than you'd realize. Some of you will say, like, Pastor, I knew all that before. And some of you will say, golly, I didn't realize it was that bad. And some of you will say, well, I, I don't agree with that. I'm not that bad. But the truth is, it really is very bad, according to Paul and what we just read. 
So here's three words used to describe us. Number one, it says we are ungodly. We are ungodly sinners, ungodly in our lifestyles. Christ died for the ungodly. This has to do with our behavior. Our behavior is lacking of the influence of God, meaning I'm making my decisions on my own thoughts, in my own power. I'm dealing with my issues the way I want to deal with them. It's my way, not God's way. And so our behavior can be described very, very accurately as being ungodly. Now, the Apostle Paul, nearly 2,000 years ago, gave a description of what life would be like. And he was speaking of life in the days following even Christ's death, which became known as the last days ever since the day of Pentecost. But listen, this was written 2,000 years ago. And I think it was true then, and it's so true now. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that sound like today? So, sounds, like, sounds like the new CBS sick, or, or mystery show on 7 o'clock on Thursday nights or something. You know, this is what people are like and, and all the scandals and all the infidelity and all the sin and debauchery, all this stuff. That's ungodliness. And the Bible says that that describes who we are. Now, what color of light is emitted from a car headlight? What color? White? Right? Yeah, uh, so, you know, I always thought it was white until the last few years I'm driving down and I start seeing these, these kind of yellowish lights and these really bright white lights. And I'm finding out that people have these xenon lights that are blazing white. And they make everything else look yellow. And, you know, and that made me think of how we in our lives start thinking, you know, I'm not that bad. When have you been to a funeral and said, well, this guy, you know, he was actually a pretty bad dude. No, we say he was a good guy or she was a, a good woman. And what we're doing is we're comparing them to other people, particularly the, the, the predators and the perverts and the terrorists. Compared to them, he is a really good man. But the bright, blinding light is like Jesus. And we compare ourselves to Jesus, we go, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm not so bright looking anymore. I'm not so good anymore. I, I start to look a little selfish self-centered. My world is about me, not about him. And all of a sudden, I, I realize how ungodly I really am. And it's not how I compare to everybody else. Sure, you can find someone worse than you. It's how I compare to Jesus. One time, Jesus told a story about a, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Because in Jesus' day, the tax collectors were, were really, um, really known as like like the worst sinners. They would scam people. They were greedy. They were rich. They were making tons of money off people. And the Pharisees, these religious leaders, were considered to be like the most upstanding citizens because they walked around with these flowing robes and they said prayers on street corners and they quoted scriptures and they did all their good deeds so people could see them. So everyone thought, well, those guys are really good. We'll never be like them, but they're really good. So Jesus told this parable. He said there was a Pharisee and a tax collector. They were both going up to the temple to pray. And as the Pharisee went up there, he said, <laughs> look at me. I fast, I pray, I tithe. And, and most of all, I am not like those, those scummy tax collectors. And so this man boasted of who he was and went forward. But then Jesus said the tax collector could not even lift his eyes up to the temple, but, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that guy... Not the Pharisee, 
that tax collector will go home righteous. Why? Because he saw reality. He saw who he was in God's eyes. God wants us to recognize the fact that it is worse than you realize. When you start comparing yourself to other people and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are, you are in different ways. You are. It just hasn't been pointed out clearly to you. Be careful of how we look at ourselves. We're ungodly sinners, according to the Bible. Secondly, he says, I'm God's enemy. While we were God's enemies, it says. Now, you may have never considered yourself an enemy of God, but when you're apart from Christ, you are indeed an enemy. You're opposed to him. You're opposed to all he stands for. You're opposed of his work in your own life. You're opposed of God doing his will through you to help other people. You become an obstacle to God's purpose. And even though you may not be publicly proclaimed as an enemy of God, your lack of movement with God is actually opposing what he's wanting to do. That's why Jesus says, if you are not with me, you're against me. He didn't say, if you're against me, you're against me. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. You're in opposition to me. You're defined as an enemy of God. Maybe you never thought of yourself that way. But deep down within us, the Bible says that we struggle with this, that that if you're really honest with yourself, you fight against God. Paul wrote a little bit later in the book of Romans, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So it's a battle, you're not winning. Because inside of you is this, is this fight against God. A third word he uses, helpless. He says, we were, when we were still powerless, meaning you're helpless to change. You're helpless to turn it around. You're helpless to fix this. You're helpless to erase the shame and the guilt of, of your past. But a month ago, I was noticing that our dishwasher, which, by the way, dishwashers have one job. They're supposed to clean the dishes. And, and when you have to take the dishes out and then kind of clean them a little bit better, you realize there's something wrong with this dishwasher. So I decided um, we were getting little, little bits of like sand, gritty stuff on the glasses and, and, and stuff. So I decided to, to get inside of this and find out what's going on. And of course, I Googled dishwasher, not cleaning. And of course, I got some videos. So I watched the videos. You can learn about anything online today. So I learned how to take my dishwasher apart. So I'm taking all these things apart. Oh, man, it was gross. <laughs> if any of you have cleaned pipes under the sink and that kind of stuff, everything behind the scenes had this layer of black slimy gunk on it all over it. It was just disgustingly gross. And I thought, have we been eating dishes that this water's swirling around all over in it? It's gross. So I'm scrubbing it all up and taking things out. Since something's not working out right. Well, I learned what a chopper assembly is. It's a little thing that chops up all little bits of food and flushes it out. And so I got a new chopper assembly and put it in there and put everything back together after it was all sterilized. And we've got clean dishes once again. You know, I could cl- I. I could take care of the gunk in the dishwasher. But you know what? I cannot. I am helpless to clean up the gunk in my own life. It's far too deep. The stain is is so deep. It penetrates to the core of me that I can't fix it. And even if I could try my hardest to stop sinning from this point forward, I've got all the memories, all the hurt, all the shame and guilt of the past that I can't erase. I'm haunted by, uh, by that. I need, I need someone to help me because I can't fix it myself. And God says that I can do that. You know, Paul, when he was writing about his own struggle, 
It says it again in, in the Romans. A lot of Romans is about this, but in Romans chapter 7, he talks about this battle inside of him and how he keeps losing it. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will help me? Because I cannot do it myself. Well, then he goes on and says, but thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus does what we are incapable of doing. It is not a matter of just reform your life, turn a leaf, get better, fight the fight. It's surrendering to him. It's allowing him to do what we cannot do for, our, for ourselves. Wash us of our past and, and cleanse us of the guilt of sin. Ungodly, enemies, helpless. Feel pretty rotten, don't you? Like, Pastor, I didn't come here to get beat up on. I, I'm not. That's not where I'm ending. But you, but you can't understand the height of God's love until you understand the, the depth of where we've come from. And this is defining reality. Jesus did not come to prop up our self-esteem. Jesus didn't come into the locker room of the church to say, oh, it's not as bad as you think it is. Hold your head up. You're better. You're somebody. You're going to conquer the world. Not without me, he says. You're not going to get anywhere without me. And we absolutely need Jesus. And there's nothing you can do to fix it except this. Surrender to the great physician. Surrender yourself to the one who has all power and authority. The Bible says that's the one thing you can do, to believe in him, to trust in him, to lay your life before him. And when you do that, you begin to see God deal with all those issues in your life. See, your condition, my condition is worse than we realize, but here's the truth also. God's response is better than you can imagine. God's response is better than you can imagine. God has every right to disown us, deny us, bring a flood to wipe us out, and he chooses not to. Here's what God did. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into this world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God's response to our sin was love. While there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, There's nothing you've done to make him love you less than he already has demonstrated in giving Jesus Christ as his physical demonstration of love to us. This was about 150 years ago. There was a a man named Harry Morehouse who was a drinker, gambler, lived in England. He walks into a, a revival meeting going on in a church and he's ready to pick a fight. But while he was there, God got a hold of him and this man left being saved. And so he began just to grow in his faith and became so excited to share his faith that he came to America And he wanted to uh, preach at the church of a guy named Dwight L. Moody. And D.L. Moody was one of the most famous revival preachers our country has ever known. He had a great church in Chicago. There's a Moody Bible Institute named after him. And so this guy that that Moody doesn't even really know, this young man says, hey, I'd like to preach at your church. And Moody's going to be out of town and says, okay, uh, I'll give you a couple days to preach while I'm gone. And so that's what happens. He preaches. And when Moody comes home, he asks his wife, how did the young man do? And she said, well, the people have been loving his messages. He said, really? Yeah, but he preaches different than you, she said. Well, what do you mean? He tells people that God loves sinners. And Moody says, he can't do that. That's wrong. I better check it out. So for the next several days as this revival went on and as Morehouse continued to preach about the love of God for sinners, Dwight L. Moody said this, that week of messages changed how he preached the gospel for the rest of his life. Because here's what happens. Many of us think that God is this angry God who's ready to send us to hell. And if you don't shape up right now, 
you're in big trouble. And sometimes that works to get us to stop disobeying our parents, stop taking drugs, show up at church. But, but, but fear of God does not develop a long-term healthy relationship. God wants us to know that he loves us. And you know, there were some leaders in this church, this church, they were together a couple nights ago. And a few of them shared what turned them off in church growing up. And in all those cases, it was the same thing. They grew up in a church that was very judgmental, that was very harsh, that did not present the grace and the love of God. And so it turned them off to church. In fact, one of them dropped out of church until he came back as a young dad, came back to this church and started hearing about the love of God all over again. Some of you have grown up afraid of God, thinking that he doesn't love you, thinking that you failed him big time. And honestly, you have. You really have. But in spite of that, God still loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. So here's what, here's what God does to you. Number one, he forgives your sin. It says, now having been justified by his blood. Justified means to be set legally right. Uh, a good way to remember the word justified is that God treats me justified, never sinned. You knew that, didn't you? Justified, never sin. So it's like your record's clean. You're, you're perfect. You did it all. You got an A. And you know you didn't get an A. But Jesus got the A and gave you his A. So, so we are justified in God's eyes. He forgave all of the sin, all of the guilt, all the shame. God, God, God says, I forgive it. It's not so much that God can't remember what we did, but he chooses to forget because it's not an issue between us anymore. And that's what we do when we forgive someone. We say, you know, it's not an issue anymore. It's not an issue. It's not going to affect our relationship anymore. So when, when John is writing to a group of churches in 1 John chapter 2, he makes a statement quite often that he says, I am writing to you, dear, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And that's a constant theme in Scripture of being forgiven. We have been forgiven because of what Jesus did. Nothing softens the human heart like the love of God when it's presented in the area of forgiveness. One time Jesus was eating at the house of a man named Simon and in walked this lady who was a hooker. And she knelt down by Jesus' feet because in those days they didn't sit in chairs like we do. They recline on pillows and Jesus is reclining. She's unworthy to be up by his head. So she goes by his feet and she's weeping and her tears are falling on his feet. So she takes her hair and she lets it down and she, she um, wipes the, the tears off of his feet and then she takes his precious perfume and anoints him. And Simon is appalled at this, saying, Jesus, do you know who this woman is? Do you know who this woman's been touching? Do you know where those lips have been? Jesus, she's kissing you. Send her away. And Jesus told this man a story about a guy who had a really, really big debt and a man who had little debt and how the man who had the greater debt was filled with more joy than the man who had the little debt that had been forgiven. And Jesus' summary of that story was, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And he said, Simon, she's effusive with her love because she's been forgiven much. But you, Simon, you didn't even, you didn't even do the customary thing of washing my feet when I came in your house. And she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. Now, it, it wasn't that Simon didn't need um, or, or didn't, didn't have much, a great need for forgiveness. He had a great need. He just didn't admit it, didn't realize it. You know what? One of the things I love about our baptisms is, is the biggest smiles come from the biggest sinners. You watch that. 
You see someone coming out of that baptistry and there's this great joy. You see someone coming up and they're going, whoa! They're screaming when they come out. I'll tell you what. They recognize how bad they've been and how great God is because they understand the gap that God just crossed, that his love filled that gap, that I'm so unworthy that God loves me. Whoa! That's awesome. When we don't think we're that bad, we're not that excited about it because I haven't been forgiven that much. He, who, he who's been forgiven much loves much. He forgives us. He, he not only does that, but it says he reconciles us to himself. He reconciles us. We were God's enemies, but we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We were on the opposite side of the fence. We played for the other team. And now he brings us to his team. We're in the season right now that um, professional football teams are lobbying and trying to, trying to um, write contracts for free agents. Free agents are players that are available to be bartered with and, and really bought for your team. And so all of a sudden you find a team that has a player that used to be an enemy. Like you used to play for the Raiders, now you're playing for the Broncos or something like that. You, know, you see someone on the other side that you want to really tackle and kill and all of a sudden they're on your side and you're putting your arm around them, you're hugging them, you give them the jersey. You know, they have a press conference. Here's your new jersey with your new number. You're part of the family. Here's what God does to enemies. He makes his enemies family. You and I who have been enemies to God and his purposes, we've now become not, not only ones who are tolerated, but we're celebrated as his children. In fact, John wrote about that again in 1 John chapter 3, that um, see the love, see that the love the Father's lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. He's lavished that upon us. He's poured it upon us. We are his children. We're no longer enemies, reconciled to him. And then the third word he uses is that we are saved, saved from future wrath. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You need to understand when someone says, I've been saved, you have to wonder, saved from what? You have to be saved from something. What we're being saved from when someone says, I've been saved, the biggest thing we're saved from is the, is the end of life judgment and the wrath of God that will come upon sinners. Because if you go through the Bible, you will see the wrath of God. Wrath is God's righteous judgment, his angry, righteous judgment against sin, against those who rebelled against him. And you see God's judgment against sin from the flood that, that came during Noah's days. And you see it through the plague sometimes. You see it through the ground opening up and swallowing um, tens of thousands of Israelites who were rebellious against God. You see it in, in Sodom and Gomorrah when, when fire and brimstone came down from the sky. There's a judgment of God towards sin, and it's very real. And when Jesus went to the cross, he not only displayed God's love for us, but it was a moment when God was judging sin. It was God's judgment upon sin, but it went to the cross. That was where God displayed it. And you may think, oh, pastor, I, I thought God was love. Why is, he, why is he just and angry and wrathful? Because he's both. The Bible says that God is just and God is love, and they intersect at the cross. But here's the truth. Love speaks louder than his justice. God always prefers to deal with us through love, not justice. Justice is defaulted when we fail to accept his love. God wants to save us from the judgment to come. I asked her permission to share this story, but I, as I was thinking about it, even this morning, I was brought back to a time in our, our church life when there was, a, there was a, a, a department in our church that was dealing with a lot of bitterness and gossip and hurtful words very bad things being spread among one another. And Lisa, who was the leader of that worship group, got together with them, and I was sitting and watching as I was there to support her. She had a pitcher of, of beautiful, pristine water. 
And she says, when you gossip, when you hurt your brother or sister, when you say evil against them, it's like, and she took a scoop of dirt, you're putting dirt into this beautiful thing God has, God has provided. And so she put scoop after scoop of dirt in that to point out, this is what we're doing with this beautiful thing God has given us. And then she stirred it all up. And then she poured a glass of that. And she said, and here's what Jesus does with our sin. And she drank it. And she drank it. Talk about unforgettable object lesson. <laughs> Jesus loves you enough to, to drink the cup of your sin and God's wrath. Say, all that ugliness, Jesus says, I will drink it for you. Now, she told me later that she actually had to tuck away in the back of her mouth. There was a worm in the cup, <laughs> the worm in the dirt. She couldn't, couldn't quite swallow that part of it. But the truth is, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, there's a cup that I am in to drink. It's a cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath. And he drank it for you and for me, all of our sin, to save us from the wrath to come because there is coming a judgment, a final judgment against sin. How do I know that? Because you can read about it in the Bible. And you get to the end of the Bible, the, the book of Revelation talks a lot about that. It says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, listen to this. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. If your name has never been written down, now that's a symbolic thing of written down, but if you've never accepted Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for you, your name is not in the book. And you will stand before God one day and you'll have to pay for your own sin. And that's the honest truth because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That's John 3.16. But if you follow John 3.16 all the way to the end of that chapter in John, listen to this, uh, the very last verse of John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. We like that, but listen to this. But whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. And that's why God is so great, because he saves us from the wrath of God. In fact, Paul points out that if God, when we were enemies, sent his son to die for us, how much more will he save us from the wrath to come now that we've been reconciled to him, now that we're his children? He'll do even more for us. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, you don't have to fear the wrath to come. I know sometimes even Christians who've given their life to Christ say, I'm still afraid, I don't want to face that day. You know, you shouldn't be. Perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. When you focus on the love of God for you and know that you've surrendered to him and you are his child, you don't have to fear. You don't, you don't obey God out of fear. You obey him out of love. You want to give to the one who gave to you. Yes, it's true. This is reality. I'm ungodly. I'm an enemy of God. And I'm helpless to fix it. But Jesus still loves me, died on a cross for me so I could be forgiven so I could be reconciled to him and eventually saved from his wrath. I was reading a story of a sociologist named Tony Campolo. Tony used to travel around and speak a lot. I don't think he does it that much anymore, but he told an unforgettable story once of a time he was in Hawaii. He went to a little cafe late at night. It was like, it was like 3.30 in the morning. Asked for a cup of coffee and a donut. And while he's sitting there in this little greasy spoon, the doors bust open and there's about eight or nine hookers that come in, and they're all gabbing, talking, gathered around, and, and because it's so tight, he has them sitting on either side of him. They're talking back and forth. And the lady next to him looks to the other gal and says, tomorrow I turn 39. And this other lady says, what do you want me to do, throw a party for you? Want me to get a cake and sing happy birthday to you? It ain't going to happen. 
And the lady over here says, why do you have to be so mean? I just wanted to tell you it's my birthday because, honestly, I don't expect you to do anything. I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Well, Tony's listening to this conversation, and when they leave, he asks the guy behind the counter, his name is Harry. He says, Harry, what is that lady's name? He says, oh, that's Agnes. She comes in here every morning about the same time. He says, tell you what, how about tomorrow I come back here, and I'll decorate this place up, and we'll have a birthday party for Agnes. And I'll bring a cake in. And Harry says, no, 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 I'll bring the cake. So the next day, about 2.30 in the morning, Tony Campolo shows up there and he's got some cray, uh, uh, cray paper decorations. He decorates this whole little cafe up. And sure enough, almost on the dot, 3.30, the doors bust open. And there's actually a bigger group because some things leaked out. So there's a bigger group of prostitutes that come into this little cafe. And then they start singing, happy birthday to Agnes. And they bring the cake out with the candles. And she gets all wobbly in the knee. She's never had an experience like this. She actually had to sit down. And when they get all done singing and they, they, they're, they're cheering, someone yells, cut the cake! And she holds the cake and says, if it's okay with you, can I just take this home? They said, sure, it's your cake. So she says, I'll be right back. So she left with her cake. And all of a sudden, there's this real awkward moment in there where it's just that people don't know what to do. And Tony Campolo says, um, because he's a, a, a preacher, he says, well, let's pray. <laughs> That's what preachers do when there's uh, silence. Let's just pray. <laughs> so he begins to pray for Agnes, and he prays for that she'd have an awesome birthday. He prays that this would be the greatest year of his, her life. He prays that she would come to know the Lord as her Savior and that her life would be changed because of him. And after he says amen, the guy behind the counter is a little disturbed, and he sneers at him and says, hey, you never told me you were a pastor. What, what kind of church do you pastor? Tony Campolo thought for a moment. He says, the kind of church that throws parties for hookers at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) And the man says, no, no, you don't. Because if there was a church like that, everyone would want to go to it. And Tony Campolo said, he's right. People are so hungry for the love and grace of God that they don't need a message of condemnation. They need to know that in spite of all their failures, in spite of all their rebellions, in spite of all their mistakes, the God of heaven who made them hasn't turned his back on them, but loves them. Now, I don't know what your background is. There could even be some hookers in here. I don't know. But I I think there's some sinners. Seriously, there's there's sinners in this place. And what I'm going to say now only applies to you if you're a sinner, if you're an enemy of God. And if you're helpless to fix your own situation, that there is a God who says, I sent my son to die just for you. And so we're going to invite you to come forward today to embrace the love of God, not to walk out of here in fear, but to know today without a doubt that God looks to you, wants to embrace you, wants to put a banner around you that says, this is my child, the son of God, the daughter of God. And that you'll have the assurance that you'll be with him not only on this earth, but you'll be with them into eternity. So I'm going to ask our prayer partners just to be uh, positioned up front along the the front here. And I want to urge you that if you need to be reminded of the love of God, if you need to surrender to that love today, maybe some of you grew up in a place where you've been told that God is hateful and, and you've disappointed him and you can never please God unless you reform your life. You need to be encouraged today that today you need to be known that there's nothing you can do that'll ever make God love you less than he already has demonstrated in giving his life on the cross for you. 
So we invite you to come up today as we sing this song of response. We want the Holy Spirit to move among us today. Let the love of God flow into your heart. Stand and let's sing together. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.